everyone and welcome to a new episode of Black Women's Hour. I don't know which episode it is, we actually lost count. I don't know which lockdown we're in, four, five, six or seven. I don't even know what day of the week it is anymore. Um, but we're surviving and we're on our way out of lockdown apparently. Um, but that's what Boris said, so we don't know if that actually is true or not. Who knows anymore? Who cares anymore? So that's why this week I look like a floating head, I've just noticed. <laughs> And my daughter's told me my lipstick makes me look like a witch. And it's a look that I'm going for. As usual, I have my trusty sidekick, Aisha. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. Looking forward to the end of lockdown. Looking forward to seeing my waxing lady. She won't be looking forward to seeing me. <laughs> I see you're starting to just lose it. You're starting to swim in the sea, aren't you? Because you're in Brighton. Yes, I've um, taken up the least black women's hour activity known to man. And I now sea swim. So um, I'm actually thinking of going without a wetsuit, which means that my black card will be revoked for sure. It was touch and go when I took it up. But. Well, you according to you, you're covered in hair anyway, no one will know. Exactly. Nadia, <laughs> Witter, how are you doing? Hey, yeah, I'm good, thanks. It's nice to be with you. What I was were you saying, are you, are you baking sourdough as well? Or? <laughs> No, I'm not baking sourdough, but Ava did tell me that she'd already revoked my card when she found out I made a pie, so. <laughs> I'm with her on that. I might say, what are you having for dinner? She goes, I've just put a pie in the oven. Pie? <laughs> it was a cheese and onion pie as well. Exactly, it's like your mother's Jamaican, what's wrong with you? I think the absolute, the sort of, the bottom line is, do you wash the rice? Of course I wash my rice, I rinse mm. my meat, just so everyone knows, I wash my meat, I wash my rice, I rinse my dishes before I put them in the drainer, I don't just take them out of the soapy water and lay them. So internally... And Hang on, who does that? Oh, that's a long story. We've also got Nishat Siddiqui, Dr Nishat Siddiqui, who is a, a cardiologist who is based in Wales. How are you doing? And also... Yes. Uh, how long have you been a Labour Party member? Um, oh, so hello, everyone. Um, I have been a Labour Party member since 2015. So um, I'd probably be disparagingly called a Corbynite, but actually um, I've been a Labour Party supporter for a lot longer than that. And, um, you know, I, I take offence at people sort of, you know, um, putting that kind of label on me. Um, and my links with the Labour Party go go back uh, several decades, actually. Although I don't know. Yeah, you're talking like you're 80. <laughs> I wish, Nishat, you told me that you were a long-time Labour member and voter when you said, guess how old I am, or I'm never going to Labour again. Yeah, we had that yeah. whole age thing. Yeah, so basically, I have this thing where if you guess my age wrong, I'll never vote Labour again. <laughs> Whereas you don't have to guess my age at all, and I still won't vote this again. So, <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. I'm glad to see some smiles and some joy, actually, because I'll be honest, last week was a very, very hard week. It was, I felt, personally, um, Aisha wrote a really great piece for our Patreon, um, saying, uh, where was the vigil for Joy Morgan? I think a lot of issues compounded and just had really got me and I know a lot of other black women and women of colour were very very stressed. Um, I think it started last week with the interview with Meghan Markle and Oprah Winfrey 
um, just the optics of that was very strong because she came out of this massively powerful family and went to literally the most powerful black woman in the world. Um, did we all see the interview? I know Aisha and I, we spoke a little bit on our Queen's episode with Angie Lamar, Michelle Gale and Judith Jacobs. Um, Nishat, did you watch it? Absolutely, I watched it, as did every single female in my family. Um, it was actually quite a moving interview. And what really struck me was, regardless of what anyone's opinions on the idea of the monarchy or the royal family may be, the issues raised by Meghan Markle um, are ones that I think every single black woman I know, every woman of color that I know has experienced to some extent, you know, and I'm in a mixed race relationship. I have mixed race children and I have come across some of the comments that she was talking about. So when, when she started speaking about her experiences, it really, really, it was like a, someone had punched me in the stomach. Um, that's how it felt. And um, I, she went up in my estimation. I have a lot of respect for her. Um, I think Harry, on the other hand, is on a journey. He's had his issues in the past, um, uh, you know, when he wore that Nazi uniform. And he, he, he comes from an establishment, a family that is steeped in centuries of racism, colonialism, so on and so forth. And so that's where he comes from. He can't change that. But I think what he can do is try to listen and learn and change himself. And actually, the less cynical part of me thinks that he's trying to do that. I think I found it was like like you. It was not about a, a royal family. It wasn't about this duchess stroke princess and this, you know, it, it became a very human story to me. It was just a story and that, like you said, that you're a bully, you're making these people cry, you're doing this. It's so familiar to so many black women and women of color. And I know a lot of us found it triggering. Did you watch it, Nadia? I did watch it and I think like you, I, I empathise with it on a very human level. I think that despite Meghan Markle's huge privilege, I think every person of colour in this country resonated with her experiences of racism that she experienced at the hands of the British establishment. Um, and I think on a very human level, we empathised with two young people, in, in particular Meghan, who'd been hounded by the media and, and the very racist element of that. I mean, yeah, I think the, the denial that there was any racism, when you're taking a, a woman, a privately educated woman from LA and then putting nearly straight out of Compton on, you know what I mean? It's like it's, she couldn't be further from that kind of image and, you know, and I remember sort of going through it and seeing some sort of disparaging mark remarks made about her mum, but we know when it's veiled, you know, like they said, oh, she turned up to the wedding with dreadlocks and a nose ring. It looks like she's not changing for anyone, but why should she? Do you know what I mean? She just came along and her mother's been very, very dignified as well, because I know, you know, most of us here, not you Nadia, but the rest of us have got kids. Um, and you know, you just become fierce and you want to go, oh, so her mother has been really, really dignified and very supportive of her throughout this whole process. One thing that I found really interesting um, have you been going into work, Nadia? Because one thing I kept reading was everybody was saying, thank God we're in lockdown because I don't think I could cope at the office with this tomorrow. 
if we were not in lockdown, you know, you'd be at the water cooler and you'd have your colleague coming up going, so what do you think of this Megan thing then? Do you think it's racist? And the amount of people that felt safe that they didn't have to deal with it. Did you have to go into work at all, Nadia? It's a really good point. It's actually something that, that I hadn't thought of. I know I, I've mainly been participating via the virtual parliament. So I did go in yesterday to speak against the policing bill, but not after that interview. Yeah. I, I think it's it sort of, yeah, brought to the fore of public consciousness that racism exists at every part of our society, at every level, in every layer, and particularly in the royal family, which was, of course, we, we have to be honest whilst having the greatest of respect for the Queen. We've got to be honest about the... Um, about the roots of the royal family in colonialism and imperialism. Yeah, I mean, it's something that the press have, you know, when it comes to Prince Philip and they call them gaffes and, you know, we've been hearing about these types of, you know, faux pas for ages, you know? And when Meghan came out and said, well, this is how it manifests itself towards me, people are acting like we didn't know this. <laughs> it's like the shark ma uh, mentioned Harry as, you know, he was using the P word and he'd um, dressed up as a Nazi soldier. Um, and that whole, I'm not even sure what the theme was, that not a colonial, colonialism party? I mean, they've been having those as well for years. So when Meghan came out and said some pretty, you know, mild stuff, but not mild, because it was mild as in it wasn't like she was being called the M word, but it was that kind of indirect, insidious racism that we all know about. Um, people acting like it was the most unbelievable thing in the world. And I just, I just didn't understand that. So it was, um, yeah, it was tough to do that. And it was tough to realize how many people felt safer at home, you know, away from their work colleagues and, you know, um, having that kind of pressure put on them. Because you know what it's like when you're working in an office, says Alan the Clown, who's been a comedian for like nearly 20 years, who does not work in an office and don't know what I'm talking about. But I imagine if I've had a, like a real job and I worked in an office, right, you'd have people, you know, coming up to you and, you know, I've heard it from other people. You know, something happens in, in the news and it's featuring a black person and then they all come and go, what do you think of that then? What do you think of that then? What do you think of that then? And the relief, the collective relief from people um, when they didn't have to deal with that was very telling about the climate in this world. We have Clive Lewis joining us. So actually, we'll just admit, we'll let him in. He's got to guess my age first. <laughs> He's coming in now. So then I'm glad that he's here, actually. And we'll go straight in to speaking about the second half of the week, which was really painful for a lot of women, um, which is the Sarah Everard case, which uh, I was on mute. Oh, he's coming. Here. Hi. Hi. How are you? How are you doing? All right. Sorry. Excuse the throw. It's like a long time since I've been to the bar, but so. oh, it's all right. I, know, I know. I'm just getting the. I'm just getting the digs in now for Nadia does because she likes that. <laughs> Actually, why are you guys not petitioning and saying that black hair care and stuff is an essential service? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm seeing loads of brothers going around with these nice haircuts. I'm thinking, you know someone. <laughs> you know someone. I don't I do know people, but like obviously as the MP, I can't go, hey mate, come on, come on, cut my hair. So um yeah, I've just had to kind of live with this afro and have people like 
picking fault with it. It looks good though. It suits you. Oh, well, I wouldn't go that far. We we haven't actually been going too long, and we're glad that you joined us when you did. Um, we are just we were just speaking about the Meghan Markle interview and stuff like that. Um, okay. We'll get on to talking about a bit about race. You wrote a really great article recently um, about that, and so we were actually going into we were just saying how hard it was last week for women, especially women of colour. Um, and then we we're going to talk about the second half of the week, which was the Sarah Everard. Um, you know, it turned out that a policeman is suspected of her murder. And that really hit women very, very hard. Um, have you been out on any of the protests, Clive? Are you up in your... No, I've done online protests. I guess I've done, I say online protests. I've been down here in Norwich. So there was an online vigil that we did. There was also a flash vigil outside City Hall, which I didn't find out about till too late. Um, but I think as part of the kind of post-police and crime bill, uh, crime sentencing and courts bill, um, I'll now make it my, uh, my duty to make sure I'm on a demonstration just to kind of push the law to its limit, but because the law is an ass in this issue. So, um, yeah, I will be at some point in the near future. Yeah. I mean, how did you feel when you heard about the case and you heard about who might be the perpetrator? Because I haven't really spoken to any men about this because I don't tend to speak to men. Um, a bit creeped out because obviously he was someone who worked in the vicinity of parliament. Mm. Um, and also as well, a lot of sympathy for, for women colleagues who I could see from the, what the MP WhatsApp groups that I was on, this had really seriously shaken them because yeah. this was an individual who was meant to be there to protect them. And, you know, we now know he was there, you know, what was going through his head. So, and that's not just, that's not just, you know, MPs, that's members of staff, you know, cleaners, everyone that works there, all those women that work there, this person was there. So it makes you also question the kind of the vetting processes that they go through. And also as well, that this isn't just, um, I've seen some of the responses, some of the reactions that we've been calling for, tougher sentences and so on. And that's, that's part, a small part of the solution, but it wouldn't have stopped. It's not going to, that wouldn't have stopped this from happening. Um, so to my mind, that's a bit kind of like a, it's almost saying, well, tougher sentences will stop this from happening. I think that's failing to look at the kind of structural issues underpinning sexual violence, um, state violence against women. Uh, and so therefore, from, my, from that perspective, um, I don't think that the kind of, the kind of knee-jerk response of lengthening the sentences is, is necessarily enough. It needs to go a lot further. We need to look at why sexism, structural sexism, is happening in society. And clearly, simply ramping up sentences isn't going to tackle that on its own. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I've, people that I've seen speaking about it have been asking for more sort of psychological tests for and constant retesting for people who are in, you know, police jobs, prison officer jobs, that kind of thing. Aisha, you were going to say something? I was just going to ask, did it not, and I know this is one of the first things I felt, was that, you know, as black and brown people, we've been telling you this, that the police have people among them, and they choose, a lot of people choose this role because they have desires to be in a position of power, and they are willing to use it for, you know, nefarious purposes. We've been saying that for a long time, and it isn't just women but it's also black people that, you know, Black Lives Matter in the States. We've been saying that for a long time. And that was one of my first reactions was that, you know, yes, it's a white woman, obviously it's tragic, but we as black people, brown people, brown women have been saying this for a long time. 
you can see that in the reaction as well in the in the fact that there are police officers you know in both cases sending you know either taking pictures with themselves with the dead bodies of of murder victims female women murder victims or you know or stood outside the scene posting you know sick jokes about it um so clearly they <laughs> Clearly, this isn't an isolated case. There is something about that, so I think you're right there. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't... I was a prison officer for, like, five years, so I kind of know the really gross... They call it gallows humour that they have there. Yeah. Would, I'm not saying taking pictures of dead bodies, by the way. I'm trying to say it's a culture where, actually, you go into these things and you're hearing people make these kind of jokes and you're like... It's almost like they become dehumanized when it comes to certain things. And, you know, they'll be making jokes about inmates attempting suicide. They'll be making jokes about yeah. inmates breaking. And I'm like, where's the humor? It does get rubbed off in those kind of jobs. It's really quite, the whole culture is pretty, yeah, icky. It's almost like, you know, when you're in a workplace and, and someone's being racist to you and they term it banter. I was kind of comparing <laughs> how they played down like quite a lot of, you know, that type of thing. That's what I, I was trying to say. Probably mm. comes with, I really want to make that clear that I do not find any of that funny. And I never even found it funny when I was in the job. I found it really, really distressing, actually. And it also does result in, and I don't think it does any good for anybody because the suicide rate amongst prison officers is actually pretty high. Um, I remember when I was in the job, we had two different people and somebody who'd been training college just ahead of me commit suicide, you know, and it's not, it, you know, they create these atmospheres that even the people inside there who are working inside them don't actually enjoy at all. So, um, Aisha, were you going to say, was it in a shot? Someone had that. Yeah, I, I just wanted to make a, a, a slight sort of tangential point around this. Um, it, it, the whole sort of situation was quite triggering for me. Um, Ava knows my backstory, but just to bring everyone up to speed, um, my 17-year-old brother was uh, murdered and it was quite a high-profile murder about 10 years ago in South Wales. Uh, two hitmen got the wrong house. It was pretty horrific. Um, and so he was stabbed to death. And, you know, at the time, it was very high profile uh, because he was at school, he was quite well liked, etc. But the police said something to me at the time that really struck me. And, you know, we were saying, you know, um, initially a couple of journalists tried to doorstep, you know, my parents um, and then the police shut it down. And they said, and the police uh, family liaison officers said that you're lucky that you are an Asian family because we're, you know, we're a white middle-class um, blonde girl who'd been killed that way. The press would be all over this. And the thing that really struck me about the, the awful murder of Sarah is the fact that, you know, black women, so many, countless black women and we say countless because no one remembers their names and they're not you know we don't have the same sort of vigils for them um you know it's only eight months ago that two police met police officers took their photos with you know the bodies of the two sisters that that were murdered and you know i know it's it's really sort of you know shocking because it was a police officer who who murdered this woman but you know black and brown people and you know white people are killed in custody you know at the hands of the police um too many times um and so you know 
I, th I think we need to look at the way um, there's outrage and how, you know, the national sentiment is stirred up and it is stirred up in a very racialized way. Um, and that for me was something that just sort of struck me and it just reminded me of my experience as well. So that's... Yeah, I think that's why I had a hard time as well with it because there were circumstances around, everyone knows I lost my eldest child. No, we lost her to suicide. There was some certain circumstance around it, which I'm not going to go into because we're still in court and stuff, but it did feel like at the time, nobody really wanted to listen. I remember first speaking to the police, they were like, oh, well, you know, she maybe made these choices and you're like, oh my God, this is so glaringly obvious what's happened here. So I do think that was the sort of second part and, you know, that a lot of black and brown women felt very vulnerable all of a sudden. They felt like, oh my gosh, you know, like Aisha had written in our page and piece, where is the vigil for Joy Morgan? And now they've come out with um, a girl called Blessing, I can't remember her last name, sorry. Um, who, yes, who went missing in very similar circumstances and nothing was done about that. Um, but I wanna, this is something that people are addressing now and we're hopefully getting those conversations to the forefront. But something that is really um, scaring people, I wanna bring sort of Nadia and Clive to speak about this, is the new police bill as it's called. Um, Nadia, I've seen you out this week protesting about it. Um, you were originally the first MP to go out protesting, weren't you? And then later on we saw, I saw photos with you and Zara and Belle and a couple of other people. Um, can you tell me what you, you were, were you always planning to vote against it? Because Labour have been criticised <laughs> only after Sarah that decided, would you have voted against it anyway? Yeah, I think Clive and I were always planning to vote against it and it was a bit of a relief that we didn't have to break the whip in order to do so. Um, sorry, it's my, my flatmate. Oh. Um, I thought it was Keir Starmer for a minute. Pants. <laughs> <laughs> for me, those protests and vigils, so I was, I was outside Scotland Yard with people and marched to Parliament on both days. And it was, it was a collective grieving for Sarah Everard, but also for for all of the women who have been impacted by male violence and very worst of all, who have been killed by men like Bieber Henry, Nicole Smallman, um, Christina Abbotts, a sex worker who was killed by her client. Sex workers have been massively excluded and marginalized in this conversation as, as they are in the rest of life. Um, Naomi Hersey, a trans woman who was killed by a man she met on a dating site and I think it was it was an act of resistance as well. I said in Parliament this week when I was speaking against the policing bill that we were marching because we're angry, because we're hurting, because we are sick of male violence and that's whether it's at the hands of the state, whether it's our partners, family members, acquaintances, strangers, Every woman I know has experienced male violence somewhere on that spectrum from sexual harassment to assault and rape. And I'm, I'm not saying that, none of us are saying that because we want sympathy. We're saying it because we, we demand change. And that's what we were doing in the streets. Um, on, on the policing bill, yeah, this is a, a rotten piece of legislation. It would hand more unaccountable power to the police, the same police who 
we saw forcing women to the ground at Clapham Common. And as Aisha and others have already said, this is not a new thing. We, we, we already know about police violence towards women, but also black people, people of color, migrants. It's, it's well documented. And I think what this week's events have sort of shown us is, I think people are joining up the dots between male violence as something that is abstract and happens over there to something that is actually a thread that runs through our whole society um, can be perpetrated by the state as well as by partners. Yeah, um, Clive, so were you going to vote against the bill, eh? Yeah, I was. Um, and I was quite, obviously, the, the kind of flash the bang, bang, you kind of flash the bang of the, the bill being published, a 300-page bill. Um, it's called a kind of Christmas tree bill because it's got all different types of bells and whistles, different bits of legislation in there. And I think uh, for a lot of us, when we heard that, that, there was a kind of a collective groan um, that the fact that something which something which had something so insidious inside of it, I know that there were bits of the bill, stuff on the Lamy Review, uh, stuff uh, other Labour MPs had done a lot of work to get in, but it was quite clear that this was a sweetener to get through some quite um, nefarious legislation, which is which is part of a uh, a narrative of legislation which has been taking place under this government, which is quite clearly one of the most racist and authoritarian governments in living memory, perhaps ever, that we've had. And you can begin to plot out a picture about what this, uh, what this legislation meant, because the bit that's been pulled out is the powers that it, it gives to police to stop protests. And we now know that Cressida Dick, um, during the last set of Extinction Rebellion uh, uh, protests, said to Priti Patel, this gives us a fantastic opportunity to update the crime and order bill, uh, the crime and order kind of legislation that's in there. And that's, that's on the record. So we know that they have used that as an opportunity to now be able to suppress um, that, that, that ability for us as citizens in a democracy to be able to, to protest, to be able to disrupt, to have pickets even. And it's now at the whim of a local police officer and depending on what they think uh, is disruptive, the business, to whoever. Uh, and I think when you look at it, it off the back of spy cops and the legislation there, off of the back of the overseas operations bill, which was in effect saying, we're going to have a two tier uh, human rights system. It means that we'll have a human rights system here in the UK, which is gonna be degraded, I'll talk about that in a second. And then we'll have one for where our soldiers are deployed, which normally tends to be places where people are black or brown or people of color. And there, there'll be a, a, a lower set of expectations in terms of what you can take to court and not and how you do that. Uh, you, you've got uh, legislation on today, we've got the review coming out on a judicial review, which is the ability for us as citizens to take uh, institutions or the government uh, to court for things that they're not doing wrong, to uphold the law. That's now potentially going to be narrowed. We've got a review of human rights legislation, even here in this country. And we've got a foreign policy now where the government are openly saying, we want to do business with um, countries that, uh, that kind of destroy and smash human rights, violate them, uh, maybe even commit genocide. We want the right because these are growth markets. So you can begin to see a picture that's building. It's quite dark. It's quite ominous. And when you think about the kind of the climate crisis ahead, 
um, the growth in inequality that's taking place, you can begin to see a government that is preparing and putting in place the pieces to be able to suppress dissent when it happens. So when millions and then billions of people across the equatorial regions of the planet can no longer inhabit those zones, and people in this country are saying, actually, we need to have a humanitarian response, that will be suppressed. When uh, the inequality that the pandemic has shown really comes into effect and really begins to, to be seen for what it is, they'll have all the peace in place, suppress that, to stop that, to stop us from democratically being able to change it, to challenge them. So what you're seeing, I thought, and what our front bench failed to see, is that we're increasingly mo moving from having a government to having a regime. And we're seeing this in Hungary, in Poland, in Turkey. We were seeing it in the US under Trump. It's, you know, and I think there was a level of English exceptionalism in this country, which is that it could, you know, fascism and authoritarianism could not happen here because liberty is part of the English character. Well, you know, the lessons of the 20th century were that actually um, totalitarianism, fascism, authoritarianism, it's a human condition. It can, it, it can affect any society and we're no different from that. No matter what we like to think about ourselves, we're no different. And that was the warning. And the fact that our front bench failed to see that is problematic. Can I ask how it feels? Like, so both of you wanted to, you looked and you put some thought into it. And you obviously knew, you guys can see, we can see from the speeches you make and the work that you guys do, Clive and Nadia, you could see where we are actually going with this Tory government. The fact that you guys were told to abstain on the bill, what is the atmosphere like in Labour at the moment? Is it almost like, you know, um, you know, they've got an 80 seat majority, so what's the point? Because that's how we're feeling. Like you, all three of us who are the non-MPs here were staunch Labour supporters, were out there all the time, you know, between 2015, 2019, December 2019. And then we just saw such a rapid change um, and it, it does seem like they're from the new leadership or whatever, or maybe it's due to the massive majority. There just seems to be no fight in Labour anymore. I've got a view, but I'll let Nadia go if she wants to kind of come in on that. Yeah, I think, yeah, there are a few issues to tease out here, aren't there? I think what we, what we need to take a very strong opposition to is the rise in social conservatism that we're seeing in society from the government. And I think it's important to highlight that the policing bill is the latest step in our descent into authoritarianism. And it was a direct response to Extinction Rebellion protests and Black Lives Matter protests, which were successful. And that's why Priti Patel wants to clamp down on them and enact the biggest assault in recent history on our right to protest. Um, so as, as a party, yes, we need to mobilise a broad coalition of support in order to win the next election. At the same time, we need to stand against social conservatism and we need to be making the argument that it's not trans women or migrants or people of colour or other workers who are responsible for a decline in living standards, falling wages, increasing rents, it's exploitative bosses, it's exploitative landlords, it's this conservative government that enables them and not just enables them but facilitates that. So I think in, in some respects the analysis is correct. We need, Keir has said that we need um, 
a far bolder and more ambitious budget from the Conservatives. That's true, but we need to take it even further than that. So not just talking about tweaking around the edges, but we need to be thinking about, you know, if we're going to make post-war analogies, then in 1945, the Labour Party built the NHS and the welfare state against massive opposition from the establishment. Now we need to be building a national care service. We need a proper Green New Deal that creates one million Green New jobs across the whole of the country. Mm. We need a, we need to democratise our workplaces and our society. And we need to be thinking as big as things like a wealth tax. And actually I say that's big. It's not, not when British billionaires have increased their wealth by a third during the pandemic and the richest 1% in the world own the same wealth as 6.9 billion people. A wealth tax shouldn't be radical, it's not radical, but that really is just the start of what we should be thinking about doing. And I think we shouldn't constrain ourselves to saying we need to be as radical as the 2019 manifesto. The 2019 manifesto is a base level. We need to be at least as bold and at least as ambitious as that because the situation that we're in now with coronavirus and the pandemic is even worse than the situation that we were in just over a year ago. And with climate and ecological breakdown, pandemics are going to become more common, more prevalent. So we need, we need a framework to address that, both to, to prevent the underlying causes but also to just very fundamentally bring about a shift in wealth and power. I've got something to say. I can see Aisha busting to come in, um, which I'm, I'm, I mean, I might, might I, well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly jump in then if you're, if you're going to let me. Um, so, <laughs> um, so I agree with that. I, I, my analysis is slightly different to, to Nadia's. Um, but I, I don't think she would disagree with my analysis. Well, I hope she wouldn't disagree with my analysis either. But there's a couple of things. So looking at, you asked about the leadership and why, where's the fight? I think one of the, one of the key things, one of the reasons why um, Keir won is that because you often find in political parties, people without much ideological baggage tend to not have made political enemies. Um, and therefore, they can be all things to all people. And I think that was certainly something which Keir was able to project, which was I can be, you know, a competent centrist, this part of the party, and I can also be, you know, my 10 points, I can be a radical to the kind of left of the party, the Corbynite wing of the party, or those who are slightly fed up with what's been going on. And, and, you, can, and you can do that, but ultimately, there was a lack of political analysis there. There was no political project. There isn't a political project. And, and that's, that's troubling, because a political project has to have kind of three key components. It has to have an analysis of what's going wrong currently at the moment within our, why we are where we are, what the problems are. It has to have a series of recommendations uh, for that diagnosis about how we, we get from where we are, the problem, to a better place. And then it has to paint a vivid, bright picture of what that better place looks like. And at, mo at the moment, we have none of those parts, none of those three stages. And that's a real problem. After a year of being 
In fact, it's not about lots of policies. In fact, that's the last thing you, you want. You can have a few. It's, 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 it's more of an analysis, a narrative, and a vision. And, and I think that without that, we're, we are now reacting. And what, you, when, what having that does, it means that when the Tories come up with, a, come up with something or with a piece of legislation like this, you basically take what they've done, you slot it into like a kind of a computer in your head and out pops the other side will be the position that you need to take based on your strategy and analysis. And they don't seem to have that and they seem to be responding. The other component of the problem is the foundation seat strategy. Um, you know, I've spoken at length on this. It's not going to win the election. And I think Hartlepool's going to show that it's not working. Um, you know, we might hold on to Hartlepool. Is it going to be a convincing wing? Well, you know, I don't want to be a pessimist. I hope we do hold on to it. But let's see what happens. But I think May is going to have to, it's going to have to lead the leadership to kind of, I think, question what their strategy is and, and what the outcomes are they're expecting and, and whether, whether May signifies whether it's working or not. And my feeling is that it, it, it won't be. Um, in terms of the analysis about what is actually happening, I think what they've missed out on is that I don't, I, th I think, look, the 2019 manifesto and some of the economic policies in there and some of it as a baseline, as Nadia says, is true. But actually, many of the economic issues that the policies in there were directed at were, uh, were symptoms, it's addressing the symptoms of a deeper malaise, which was the crisis of democracy. There is a crisis of democracy because how does a functioning democracy allow a minority of the popular vote to bring in a, a hard right Tory government with an 80 seat majority when less than 50% of the, vote, of, the, of the population voted them? How does a functioning democracy, after, 30, after knowing for 30 years about the climate crisis, still consistently bring in governments which uh, and co allow corporations and the global economy to destroy the planet, you know, and the very life support systems that we all rely on to, to carry on funding, you know, corrupt regimes to, to, to instill, you know, in Yemen, for example, to instill famines and, and destroy all the infrastructure of that country and, and create, you know, civilian pandemics and, and, fam and famines. So, you know, there is something clearly wrong at the heart of our democracy. There is clearly a fundamental issue. I think Extinction Rebellion picked that up when they were demonstrating last time. And, and they kind of were saying, actually, there's something rotten at the heart of our democracy, something that isn't functioning properly. And I think one of the things that the Labour Party could do, and there isn't really a cost attached to this, is about saying we will, post-Brexit, fundamentally rewrite the, you know, with you, not from the top down, but with people, give us a democratic system, the more democracy at work, more democracy in our communities, a confederated, uh, uh, United Kingdom if necessary, but we will give power to people to have a democracy fit for the 21st century, which can deal with the challenges that we know are coming. And I think what we've seen at the moment with this lot, with this government, is that they are fast and, fast and busy trying to move us in that direction. And I think if Labour wants a radical agenda, which doesn't cost the earth, it's about bringing, giving back control to people, to communities, um, to the regions of this country, and in people's workplaces. And I think that's a radical narrative that we can have, um, which unfortunately doesn't seem to be picked up by. So I think you, to answer your question, it is, it is hard for those of us who want labor to do well, but can see that actually it's struggling because it doesn't have the right analysis. And, and simply, simply put, it, it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to want to have the right analysis. I think, um, yeah, I agree with 
everything that you said there. I think the current Tory government that we have is almost like my four-year-old next door because she knows I'm in here doing this. She's in there doing all sorts and I can hear her. And it's almost like, they're like, wow, we're actually getting away with this. And they know, you know, just in case they voted out in five years, they're just doing everything they can while they've got the time to do yeah. it right now. And I think a subject that we've missed out, um, I was, I'm gonna bring you guys in as well, but I, something that we should go on to afterwards is, is racism. You know, when you were speaking about racism, and we've got to speak about the compliant press that we have as well, because was, really and truly, we should be horrified at what's happening in Yemen. But we're not horrified because since 2001, Muslims have been dehumanized. And when they're sold as these types of people, people just don't care. I mean, we had Shamima Begum's uh, family lawyer on here a couple of uh, weeks ago, and we were talking about the attitude, you know, what is this attitude? And I think it's become to the point like, you know, the Tories came in with get Brexit done. And there's been so much misinformation about Brexit. Oh my God, the Turks are coming. They're trying to get into our country, you know, that people actually chose racism over eating, basically. I mean, Aisha, do you want to say something? I was just going to ask both um, Clive and Nadia how we do this with the compliant client journalism that we're faced with. I mean, part of the reason 2019 happened was because 2017 happened. Two and a half thousand votes or whatever. 2019 was a direct result of a press and an establishment closing ranks and making sure, I mean, how, how many billionaires is our press owned by? How on earth do you enact and publicize and gain support for a radical leftist collaborative movement when you've got a press screaming right-wing, essentially fascism, author authoritarianism and racism and capitalism at people and people suck it up because like Ava said, they choose racism over eating. How do you, I genuinely want to know the answer to this because it is, uh, my, my living in this country depends on the answer basically. <laughs> how do yeah. we stay here with this? So I mean, yeah, sorry, no idea. I, I don't think there is a simple answer to that. I think it's something that we've we've been grappling with as a movement, as people of colour for decades and decades. Um, I think one of the things that gives me a great source of hope is the emergence of new media, like Galdem, like ID, like... Um, Oh, there's, there are so many, um, and also the ones that aren't publications, but are like Instagram and TikTok pages. But I get that Instagram and TikTok and Galdem, as much as I might like them to, are, are not going to break into the mainstream press. They're not going to take over the Daily Mail and the Sun. So I, I think this, this, again, I think comes back to the point about democracy and needing to democratise our society and give people power, not just make sort of shallow tweaks around the edges. So this is, it, I think it, it partly goes to the issue of trade unions actually, and us not having unionised workplaces anymore. Um, I think that that's, that's something that needs to change. I think an investment in our own sort of media would be a good thing, but it's something, it's something that has been tried but hasn't really been successful. And even then it doesn't get to the issue of cutting through the mainstream. But I think if we can 
reverse the fact that billionaires own our media and introduce things like a wealth tax, that would go some way to shifting wealth and power generally, which then I think would have a knock-on effect on our media. So, so yes, sorry. I mean, can I answer that or shall I shut up? Yeah, yeah, sorry. I just want to bring the shot in afterwards because she does some stuff uh, locally. That I think yeah, no, I, I'll be, I'll be quick. I, I think, I think, it, I think if we look at the problem as um, how do we change the media to change our democracy, it's in the wrong order. If you change our demo, if we change our democracy, let's just take the voting system, just for example. Uh, you know, and this is why it's important to me. Um, if you have a system where people's votes matter, what you have at the moment is under first past the post is you have a political voting system whereby at any one time, any one general election, around about a million people in, a, in the swing, marginal swing constituencies, they're the ones whose votes matter. And so what you get is a pool of people, whether it's, you know, Worcester woman, Mondeo man down in the southeast, or at the moment, the foundation uh, social seats, you get around about a million people whose vote actually matters. And those people then, our media focuses in on them laser-like, and, and they're, what, they're, what they're told, what their issues are, what's important, and then politicians in part feed into that and feed it. And what you get then is you get this kind of, um, this kind of disruptive process whereby it distorts all of the kind of other views that may well be important to the other 59 million people in this country. Basically, get blown out of the water. There's no time for it. And then you, so you get, and that's perfect for a media that can concentrate its firepower on those million people. And, and, and I think ultimately, if you have a political voting system which disperses power and means that there aren't a million people in swing constituencies that can make a difference, actually everyone's vote matters and a more proportional system, then you're taking away some of their power. So that's the starting point. But then if you're opening up democracy and you're giving democracy to people to make more decisions locally, and I'm not just talking about to city councils, I'm talking about bringing in policies like a four-day week, like universal basic income, giving people the power and the resource, the financial ability to be able to take more time to be more interested in their community, which mo most people do. Once you've done that, you're already circumventing the power of the media because their ability to be able to focus in on one group or one set of MPs in the political class is already being kind of cut out. So, you know, our own media is important, but actually making it less easy for those media magnates, those billionaires to influence that small group that's a way in, and then you can come for them, <laughs> which is what needs to happen. That, that was good. You gave me a little bit of hope. <laughs> no, I found that, that, you know, speaking to people, I went out a lot in 2017, and then, you know, the atmosphere was completely different between that and 2019. Like, literally, 2017, people were like, oh, really? This sounds interesting. 2019, they were like, get off my lawn. It was like, literally, mm. what on earth was that? Um, but I kind of agree with what you're saying. To call them like lots of little mini devolutions, like for each city, as they have like with you know Ireland, Northern Ireland and you know Scotland and Wales. But Nishar, you were saying something like that because I I, I agree with what Clive's saying. You, if you have local people speaking um, and you're you're raising your own concerns and stuff like that, it's very hard for them because then they'll come along. Like I mean, you go to Islington North. And you try to say, oh, well, the son said Jeremy. They're going, nah, known him for years. We know him. We know what he's about. We're not having that kind of thing. But that's something that you've been working on or, or putting in place, right? Um, so 
I, I really am a big fan of this idea of radical democracy. Um, and um, it, it basically takes democracy to its basic constituent level and expands it, expands the definition so that um, communities become empowered. And what's really devastated me is actually, I, I love what um, Clive is saying, and he really does sell proportional representation, but realistically, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Sorry, Clive, but you can come back with that one. Um, because we do live in a managed democracy. I don't even think we live in a fully functional democracy. Most people are quite apathetic. And I'm going to say something quite controversial at the moment. I think the Labour Party is having an existential crisis. Uh, certainly the leadership is. Um, it's such a, a, a wide ranging sort of collaboration of different elements of people. So you've got people on, on the right wing of the Labour Party, uh, you've got blue Labour, you've got sort of the centrists, and then you've got, you know, the, the left wing, uh, which is being eviscerated um, as we speak. And, and what's quite disheartening um so I'll, I'll talk about the depressing bit and then <laughs> sort of a, a glimmer of hope what's dis, you know really really disappointing is that the uh, leadership seems to be really passionate and decisive when it comes to sort of you know chopping the heads off the left but actually when it comes to scrutinizing the government and its mishandling of the covid um, epidemic for example uh, uh where it says you know oh we, we're going to sort of you know support the government uh but we'll uh, give constructive criticism it's really failed to even do that and you know when we're talking about you know having progressive taxes labor didn't even want to raise corporation tax and so you've got this perverse situation where the Tories are nicking the best bits and the most populous bits of the 2019 manifesto not really implementing it but giving it that spin and Labour is almost kind of trying to be it, it's embarrassed of its own you know near history and certainly the Corbyn moment and what as a Muslim woman I feel really saddened about is that um, you know you had Labour politicians um, sort of you know embarrassed about the Corbyn leadership embarrassed about the new members and um, a lot of Tory politicians a lot of sort of right-wing journalists were saying well you know Corbyn's like this he's an anti-Semite because he wants the Muslim vote OK, people actually came out and said that. Um, and it's just so deeply insulting and so wrong. And if you can imagine, you know, when Barack Obama was president, one of the worst insults mm. people were throwing at him was that he's a Muslim. He's a secret Muslim. Now, if that's the worst kind of insult you can throw to the most powerful man on Earth at the time, can you imagine what it's like for an average, you know, Muslim child? Uh, an average Muslim black child, you know, they're the bottom of the heap. And, you know, so when I see the Labour Party behaving the way it is, trying, you know, certainly aspects of the leadership, you know, focus grouping its way into oblivion, um, trying to grab hold of this, in my opinion, racist white vote from this mythical red wall that doesn't exist, I'm sorry, it's alienating. It is truly alienating. And, you know, my, my attempts to leave the Labour Party have been quite farcical because I sent this really sort of, you know, heartfelt email to the wrong email address, I think. And, and you know, I spoke to our one of our local MPs, who's a really decent woman, um, Jess Morden. She's actually a government whip. She works really hard for the community and she phoned me up. And the first thing she said was, 
please don't leave the party. But actually, I can't think of a reason why I should stay in a party when the party's embarrassed that people like me joined, you know, uh, embarrassed that a Muslim woman joined, embarrassed that Corbyn was appealing to the wrong people. Basically, the wrong people are people of colour, you know, gay people, trans people, you know, GRT community, you name it, Muslims. And, and that is what the subtext is when you listen to the media. They, they are saying basically Labour was too focused on these cosmopolitans. Well, actually, I, I, I work out in sticks in South Wales. Most of my patients are not like me. A lot of the doctors are like me, but not the patients, you know, and, and it is so depressing. So that's a depressing part. But um, on a positive thing, um, I think things will have to get a lot worse when I see the, um, and that's not positive, but I think when I see the young people who have absolutely zero chance of getting on the housing market, zero chance of getting a decent job to live, um, you know, independent lives free from, you know, you know, living in a house share way until they're, you know, in their late 30s, 40s sometimes. Um, I think something will snap in society and I think the system will crumble. We cannot carry on like this. And the political system, I'm not advocating anything, you know, violent or insurrection or anything like that. But I actually think there will be a point in time where these hordes of young people will actually rise up and say, we can't live like this anymore. And I don't actually, and I, I know it sounds really pessimistic, Clive and Nadia, but I gave my all to the Labour Party. It's very emotional for me because I, I was sick when I was pregnant and I was knocking on doors, vote for Labour because it's a way forward. And then to then sort of, you know, I didn't expect to get emotional like this, but then to have that thrown back in my face as something that the party's ashamed of really hurts. And I don't, I don't actually believe in the system anymore. I don't. I think a lot of us and, feel like I, I know that when you guys lost the election, like I remember when the, you know, the initial numbers came in and whatever, I had to turn it off halfway through and I couldn't get out of bed for three days. I literally stumbled like in my nightie with a coat over it, jumped my daughter in the nursery, came back and lay in my bed and cried all day long for three days. Like, honestly, I don't, and I think it is really disheartening to see, like Nishat said, like we, um, I wrote a Patreon piece and um, about, and I, I left it open to the public, just trying to get the humanity out there. And what people felt when um, Labour lost the 2019 election, I mean, I had to put trigger warnings for alcohol abuse, suicide attempts, this and that. And somebody said that they were walking, um, their partner was um, doing an account and she was walking in and a, a guy who was homeless outside said, who's won, who's won, has Jeremy won? And then she said, no, and she said, the guy just broke down and cried. And, and that is the bottom line, you know, we, we are looking, it just feels so hopeless. And then when Clive went to be leader, I'd written a piece called Ready Steady No about the leadership race. And I knew they were gonna do that to you, I'm sorry, I just, it's so disappointing. And then Dawn coming Send in- Send it to me, <laughs> I'll have a read of it. Sorry? Send it to me, I'll have a read of it. I will do, I will do. I just was just like, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I just, it's, we didn't even mean to get this emotional. It's just, it's just so painful. It's, it's really painful. 
it's even harder when we look at this policing bill because who's among us could have predicted that the Tories were going to behave like this given rampant power and that's why it's, it's even more painful we are at the sharp end of their policies we knew this was going to happen and here we all are and we are going to suffer the consequences our children will suffer the consequences our parents will suffer the consequences for years to come and that absolutely sucks so don't get me wrong I know you guys fought the good fight like Jesus, this isn't an attack for you guys, but it's really, where do we find hope? I think everyone is looking for that because I don't know, but I know every single black woman, particularly I know, is asking, where can we go? Because this country isn't safe for us. And that's all tied into this lack of hope. You know, we have the yeah. Sarah Everard thing. We now have Tories taking all our rights. We can't yeah. even protest in case we're what, too annoying, is it? Was it an annoyance? Can I ask it's this question? It's a dodgy term when you're brown. We have to go in a minute. So I, I want to ask this question of you guys because not only does this country feel unsafe for us, but the Labour Party feels unsafe for us as well. And we're looking at the way that um, high profile um, black and brown MPs are being treated. Then you look over there in the Tory party and you're seeing the way black and brown MPs are being celebrated. Obviously, we don't want to do what they have to do to be celebrated, but young people are growing up and they are looking at what is happening over there go well if I go into the Tory party I could be in in the cabinet like well, there's no there's no end to where we could be if we if we join but Labour just seems to, like it's not doing that and you're speaking about this mythical red wall but what about the stalwarts in our community who've voted Labour forever you know what I mean what about Tottenham what about people like that like so I don't know how you guys feel like as you know black brown MPs in the Labour like what what I don't know. You know what yes, I'm asking. So, so can I, I can come in. I can come off a few of those points. So, so in terms of the, the kind of the black Tories that are kind of appearing now, materialising, history has always shown that there have always been, you know, black people willing to work with, you know, the colonisers or the conquerors. In fact, they're needed to be able to be the face that then tells people what's going to happen and how it's that they're the interface. And there's always people, you know, they're in the Tory party. They're now part of a party, which is, you know, global Britain means basically stripping, you know, Empire 2.0, countries where they, they came from, where their family came from. And they're prepared to do that. They're prepared to be part of a party that will keep the global South in the global South, you know? So you, once you acknowledge that, then you can't be surprised about the fact they're going to turn the screws here because from their perspective, it's like, I'm in the ruling group. I'm in, I'm on the inside, me and mine are good. It's to hell with the rest. And that's their mindset. So, you know, from that perspective, they are willing tools of those who are going to use them to basically say, this isn't racist. And that's a powerful tool for them to be able to use. So that's, that's in part why I think that's happening. Um, and that historic has always happened. In terms of the Labour Party itself, it's so sad to hear uh, Nisit say that and, and the feeling because... It's something we hear as well. Um, both me and Nadia hear a lot. And the way to find hope, you know, you know, the, the old Antonia Gramsci quote that the old is dying, the new cannot be born, is yet to be born. I really feel it is true. And someone said that, you know, it's, it's coming to a head. And if you look about where the Labour Party came from, it came from the mass movements of industrialization that no longer exist. And yet the Labour Party still does. And so, you know, to my mind, what's needed and the reason i'm kind of really into the kind of the pr tip for lots of reasons but one of the key reasons is that one of the ways i think it in many ways is uh the midwife 
of whatever is to be next. And that could still be the Labour Party in its current form. But I think one of the problems we have is that society is changing so much. And history shows us that the most successful party in Western Europe is the Conservative Party. Yeah, but it is the most successful party in Western Europe because it can see the changes that are coming and it keeps out on top. It would change. If it needs to ditch the aristocracy and, and introduce the Corn Laws, it will do it. If it needs to ditch the old industrialists uh, or the old manufacturing magnates and embrace the bankers and financiers for global neoliberalism, capitalism, it'll do it. It will do whatever it takes to stay on top. The Labour Party has to adjust in a progressive way to what's happening and what's coming. And what PR does is it makes the Labour Party confront that. And I, th I can hear people's you know, upset with this. PR isn't a silver bullet, but what it does, it enables us to have a system of governance whereby political parties are representative of what people actually want. And at the moment, I think we've got a situation where the Labour Party has lost its way. It has lost its way. There's no two ways about it. And if we want to find our way, then what we've got to do is we've got to allow our party to become representative of the myriad of interests. But the problem is we've got a 20th century system of politics trying to deal with the problems of the 21st century. And that isn't going to work. And we're stuck in individualized little silos. We're here. You've got the Liberal Democrats over there, whatever you think of them, the Greens over there, the climate movement over there, the Black Lives Matter movement over there, the women's movement over there. And they are all working together. But the Labour Party is still has this belief that unless you're inside the Labour Party, you're not a progressive or the trade union movement. You're not a progressive, but they're shrinking and we have been shrinking. So how do you build a politics which can bring all those groups together? And PR helps to do that. But it's not the it's not again, it's not a civil bullet, but it does help to do that. And I think that's where the future is building a new progressive movement. And I, I'm, I, you know, people often ask, how do you define progressive? I think with our backs to the wall, with the climate and ecological countdown ticking, you know, we haven't got decades to get this right. The way that you define progressive for me is do you want more democracy, not less? And do you want to challenge the power of capital and wealth and vested interest? Even if it's only that much. Leila Moran, for example, might only want to challenge power and wealth and vested that much. I want that much. Well, that's a start. I can take a, two, a few steps together with people like that and people outside the Labour, outside of party politics. That's the kind of politics, progressive politics we need if we're going to take on the forces that are confronting us. The Labour Party can't do it on its own and nor should it want to because the future has to be negotiated, not dictated. And once the Labour Party understands that, we can all start winning. Absolutely. Nadia, have you <clears throat> It's absolutely heartbreaking, Nishat and Aisha and Ava, to hear about your disillusionment with the Labour Party. And I, I empathise because it's, it's something that I hear from my friends, from my neighbours. I mean, the reason I joined the Labour movement, I joined in 2013 under Ed Miliband, and it was bedroom tax that got me involved in politics because I saw the absolute misery that austerity was causing to, to my community, to my friends and family and neighbours. And I didn't join the Labour Party because it was by any means the perfect party. At that point the party wasn't even an anti-austerity party. I joined because I thought that it was 
a vehicle for change, not the only vehicle, but an important one. And I see the Labour Party in Parliament as being a parliamentary representation of working people in all of our diversity. And I, I still believe that. And I think that um, when, we, when we look at the Tories, you're right, this is dangerous because you can look at the Tories and you can see they've had two women prime ministers, Priti Patel, one of, if not the most powerful person in the country is a woman of color, a daughter of immigrants. And we've got to keep saying that it's liberation that is important, not just representation. We could have a parliament that is just made up of people of colour, that is 100% female. And I'm not saying that that would be, that that would be preferable, but you know, we, we could have a very representative parliament and it still do nothing for our liberation. And that's why Clive and I are both talking about empowering people in our communities through material and social change. And what you say about the red wall seats is, is absolutely right. And I think there's a really insulting caricature mm. seats that assumes that there are no trans people in the red wall seats, there are no women, there are no, um, no victims of police violence. There's no one who protests, no one who either goes to a school or works in a school, you know, the, the list goes on. And actually, we need to we need to stop looking at red wall seats, so-called red wall seats, in that way. And we need to stop sort of imagining that they have these reactionary views and then catering our policies to the lowest common denominator. And the reason why I'm in the Labour Party and why I'm a Labour MP is that I really believe that we can do that. And I don't want to see people leaving the party because look at how far we've come and the the shoulders of the giants we stand on and all the progress that we have made as people by coming together and struggling together and fighting and winning and this is another one of those fights as young people as people of color of working class people in all of our diversity across the country we've got to stay and fight and we've, we've got to connect the Labour Party with all of these amazing social movements like Black Lives Matter, like Extinction Rebellion, like the youth climate strikers. Not just to get us into government, but also to, to win a government that is, is our representation. I agree. Um, we're pretty much out of time. Thank you, guys. I've taken a lot from this. Um, I think I was actually planning to join the Tories anyway. <laughs> oh, why not? Why not? You are cancelled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, just hear me out, right? Like, they talk about Labour being a broad church. To me, it makes no sense. You can't have a church where everyone's not praising the same God. But they come and do it to us. So why don't we just go all go and join the Tories and change them from the inside out? No. If you do, can you deport me, please? <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine yeah. sitting on their meetings? They'd be so mad. <laughs> it would be so annoying. Uh, guys, it's been a really, really... Um, it's oh, been a good... <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, but good. Thank you. Can I just say sorry for getting a bit emotional? Um, 
No. As it stands, I am actually technically still a Labour member because I'm just too incompetent to leave. <laughs> I sent the email to the wrong uh, email address or something. It was a really long email sent to a, I don't know, some computer somewhere, somewhere in the ether. So. Uh, no, I think um, it's important that people know, and that's why I wrote that piece about what it actually meant, like the way that Labour voters were demonised and stuff, because it wasn't about that for loads of people. It wasn't about attacking a minority. It, wasn't, it was just nothing more than wanting kids to eat and wanting a fairer society. And I think that got so, so lost. I think it's important. And no one's going to criticise you for showing your emotions, because a lot mm. of us really, really felt it. Definitely. Really, Definitely. We felt it for you guys, but we're glad that you guys kept your seats and... One piece of advice, if you are going to leave, don't do what a member here did, which was they, they jumped up in front of a load of uh, Labour councils and went, I resign, and they were trying to rip their car, but they're plastic, <laughs> so they were struggling. And, <laughs> so that brings some scissors with you, but I would recommend no scissors, change the party from the inside. We can do that, you know? I think about Corbyn and John Mack, you know, the years in the wilderness, in the, the tomb of the left. And they got a shot. Yeah, right. they Can I make around. a quick suggestion before before we, we all sign off? Um, Ava, maybe we should reconvene in a year's time and we all sort of vow to do what we've said we'll do today and then we'll reconvene and, and see, see where, where we, we are. are. Yeah, I'd love I'd to. Love to, yeah. I'm just recording. Um, time in between that year as well where we can go out and have a drink. Yes, come to my yeah. RBT show <laughs> when, you've got, when you're in London. Uh, Nadia's been on my RBT show, um, so you should come down. I'd love to. Yeah, What's that's... the RBT show? It's the... Vauxhall Tavern. Who? Sorry? Royal Vauxhall Tavern. It's like the gay cabaret. Yeah, famous. I'd love to come down. I do a show there. Like, um, So yeah, okay, I'll get in touch and I will book you for that. I'm just yeah. going to switch off. So we say bye to the audience and then I'll say bye to you guys. So don't go. Bye. 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 bye.